according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are once again in Philippians chapter 4 tonight. Philippians 4 and verse 1. This is our, like our third or fourth class now in Philippians 4, and we haven't gotten out of verse 1 yet. We're, we're, we are going to get to Yodi and Syneche, and uh, the fact that they need to live in harmony in the Lord, and, and that's always a fun thing to preach. Um, but it won't be tonight, so we'll see... Uh, Maybe a week from tonight, I would expect, uh, as far as that goes. I do want to finish up what we were looking at in uh, Standing Firm and, uh, and remind ourselves what we studied uh, already as it relates to in the Lord. What does it mean in the Lord? That's not a throwaway expression. It's a very significant expression that shows us the mechanism by which we can stand firm. And so we'll center on that. Also, we have some Q&A time. Some came by email, and I want to address those. And then also some additional questions as it... Uh, was connected to the newsletter that uh, the the word or two from Pastor Bob that we were addressing some things from Ephesians and Colossians. So uh, I thought I'd take tonight and answer answer those questions as well. So anyway, there's uh, a lot on our plate. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father to bless our time in His Word this evening. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this evening, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for your faithful provision. Father, you are so good and uh, and so faithful. Uh, Father, when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. And these are the promises that we cling to. We love them. We love the truth of your word. And we look forward tonight to learning more. So Father, uh, protect us, hedge us about, and and, uh, bless our time of study. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the microphone is ready to go. So before we take the first live question, that's a silly way of saying that. Everyone's alive that's here tonight. Um, But there was one that came on Facebook and um, somebody that listens to our MP3s from somewhere. Actually, this is a friend of Crystal's from years and years ago, way back in the day. But uh, anyway, the question she posted, um, I have a question, maybe two, but they are similar. I'm reading through the Bible and I came to the flood. Why did God destroy all living things with mankind? Mankind sinned, but animals can't. Yes, I'm an animal slash bird lover. Also, and then her second question, and they are fairly close, but I'll, I'll break down the questions into two parts. So really, um, the judgment upon the world is the same thing with a curse upon the earth when Adam and Eve fell, that the fact is that God administers judgment based upon accountability. And Adam was the steward, and Adam was the with with Eve as his helpmate. But when Adam sinned, remember when you when you look at at uh, Genesis, when their eyes were opened, her eyes were not open when she ate. She ate, and then she gave to her husband, and he also ate. And then when he also ate, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And so she really did not become spiritually dead until her husband became spiritually dead. And so really, when it comes right down to it, uh, she did not become a sinner based on her own sin. That she became a sinner in Adam based upon Adam's sin and his spiritual authority and headship over the human race. Remember, uh, she came from him. She was his rib before, uh, before she was, was her. Anyway, so then there's the consequences. And Adam sinned, her eyes are open, his eyes are open, the earth is cursed, we have uh, pain in childbirth and other 
consequences of Adam's sin. And so similar aspect in the flood uh, that all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth, that the fallen angels were intermarrying with the human women, that there was all kinds of genetic manipulation and other things that were happening and so God had to wipe out all of humanity other than eight people. Noah, Mrs. Noah, the three boys, and their wives. And so in order to save eight humans uh, the whole planet perished. And, uh, and so it is what it is. And, and so if you are an animal lover, then that's a tough thing to deal with. You think, well, why did they have to die? You know, well, animals are creatures of instinct that are born to die. And uh, their death feeds other animals or people. Their death has a purpose. And it's not immoral when an animal dies. It's not murder when you kill an animal. It's not the image of God and the shedding of blood you know, in, in, in that process. So um, yes, the animals died in the flood, uh, but that's not considered a moral issue. That's not considered unfair on God's part. I do agree that they don't sin. Animals don't sin. They don't have volitional capacity to sin. And, uh, and yet uh, it's like, you know, um, and I'm not an animal lover and I realize that hurts my, uh, my credibility in some sermons. But, uh, but honestly, uh, an, a, an animal death is, is like a haircut. It's like cutting your grass. It's like chopping a tree down. It's, okay, yeah, uh, you mow the lawn and living blades of grass just died. Um, but I don't get worked up over it. All right. That's not an emotional issue, uh, as sometimes happens with a lot of pets and, and animals that we assign human emotions to. So that's the answer on that. But then it goes beyond. Then the next question is a, a bigger question, really. In Joshua 7, one of the men in the army takes some goodies forbidden by God. This was in the plundering of Ai. And they actually kept some things that were haram, that they were under the ban. And uh, he hid them in his tent. When it comes time to punish him, God kills all of his children, his wife, his animals, his servants, etc., etc. How is this fair? It bugs me, and I probably have the wrong attitude, but perhaps you can shine a little light on this. I would not have been happy to be one of his children and had done nothing wrong only to be punished for something my father did. And that's a legitimate question actually, and particularly since in Deuteronomy 24 in the Mosaic law it is not permissible to punish a family for what the father had done. So fathers shall not be put to death for their sons nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. And so you don't have collective punishment or collective judicial execution uh, for those things. And yet there are at least two episodes in the, in the Old Testament where God does just that. And uh, Joshua 7 is one example. There's another one in Numbers 16 with, uh, where the earth opens up and swallows entire families uh, that are in their rebellion at that point. Um, and so my conclusion is I, I completely agree that God would never do anything unfair that uh, he wouldn't slay the righteous with the wicked and, and so forth. But um, I think when you do read the details in Joshua 7, you do learn that before that judgment was administered that there was a, uh, a grace period and that there was a warning. And uh, when it was revealed, the reason why they lost the battle was because of that plunder, because of the, the, uh, the silver cup that had been saved by Achan. And so uh, the Lord exposed that and they're given a repentance time. And in Joshua 7.13, rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow 
uh, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, there are things under the ban in your midst. So they had a night to turn themselves in. They had a night to, to confess and come clean. And, uh, and so we, we, it's natural to believe that Achan uh, was not alone in this conspiracy, that his wife was in, the children were in, the servants were in, that uh, this was not unknown to his tribe and to his clan. And uh, so because uh, you cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed this thing, the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning then you shall come near by your tribes and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. So uh, again, I think the warning given the night before gives the opportunity for Mrs. Aiken or Aiken Jr. or the servants or or so forth to come clean and to announce, hey, you know, my dad took that silver cup and it's buried in the tent right now and and, and to fork it over. So uh, when the collective judgment does come, it comes, and I don't believe it's unfair on God's part to do that. So anyway, that's really the, the best answer on that. I think the same thing happens in Numbers 16 when uh, you know, there was a rebellion uh, on the part of uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and some of the priests were rebelling against Aaron and Aaron's authority there. And so the Lord said, step back, get away from these tents. And, and so anyone that wanted to repent, that didn't want to identify with the, with the rebellion, they could have stepped back also. They could have come and stood by Moses. Uh, but the fact that they took their stand next to uh, these people that were uh, targeted for execution, uh, when the earth opens up and swallows the whole the whole lot of them, uh, the, I believe that he had got, the Lord had given them the repentance opportunity to uh, to come from that. So that's the answer there, and I hope that's uh, adequate for the questions that were asked there. All right, so that came by email or by Facebook, so we can take some live questions tonight. Let's start over here on the other side and uh, take those questions. And also, before we're done tonight, I want to uh, answer the submission question from, from Ephesians 5, too. So, Yes, ma'am. My favorite subject, submission. Ha-ha. Oh, good. All right. I'm joking. Um, I actually, uh, I was wondering, it has to do with animals. Uh, yeah. Two questions. Uh-huh. Were there ever dragons? Yes. And do you, there were? Were there, yes, there were dragons, uh-huh. And do animals go to heaven? No. Okay. But it talks about in Revelation. I mean, yeah, near I take I your tell. answer about no, but it talks about animals in heaven, how the lion will lay in the lamb. Um, on, the new, on, the, on the millennial earth, the lion will lie with the lamb, and the mm-hmm. child will put his hand in the viper's nest. Mm-hmm. And those are millennial scenes on the earth in mm-hmm. the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The only thing we can say uh, about animals in heaven, there is a scene... The Lord descends from heaven on riding on a white horse. And the armies of heaven follow him riding on white horses. And so uh, on the basis of that passage, um, I have to assume there's some kind of either zoological horses or much more likely angelic beings that are in the form of horses that, uh, that, that become our transportation when we come. Uh, but that's in a vision scene also, and so it's really, I think you're on shaky ground if you take a vision scene and try to build a, a comprehensive. Also, with respect to animals, animals um, are not in the image of God. Animals are not 
volitionally accountable. Uh, they do have souls, and they, they are called nephesh with the Hebrew word for soul. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it, Jesus did not become the God hamster to die on the hamster cross to provide hamster salvation. I told this to my daughter one time, that her hamster is dead, and we buried it in the backyard. And because hamster Jesus never died on the hamster cross to, uh, to uh, pay for the hamster sins. So when it comes to animals in heaven, and then here's the other thing too, if in fact there are animals in heaven, that's a different statement than, and we have to assume, maybe yes, maybe no. But even if we make that assumption that animals are in heaven, that doesn't mean that my former best friend, you know, puppy is in heaven. That specific animals, because they don't identify as individuals, if that makes sense. When Adam named the animals, he named horse, cow, dog, pig. He didn't say, you know, Fred, Sam, Jim, Bilbo. He didn't give personal names to the animals. So, uh, does that answer the question, maybe? Yes. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, were dinosaurs around when man walked the earth? Yeah, the, in the Old Testament they're called behemoth and they're called Leviathan. And Leviathan also is known as the dragon. That The dragon was a very particular, some would say he was a dinosaur in the sense that he was a giant lizard, but uh, I think that the dragon is the Leviathan from Job chapter 41. I'm sorry? When I asked about dragon, I was talking about fire-breathing dragon. Yes, fire-breathing dragons. Okay. Job chapter 41. Thank you. Uh -huh. All right, outstanding questions tonight. I appreciate that. What else? Back row then. Chairman Doug. We're supposed to be all uh, given a name by God mm -hmm. that only him and us know. Right. Like, I'll have a name. How are we going to tell, what are we going to call each other? I'm, I'm call you Doug. I don't will, know. I be, will I be Doug in heaven? You know, um, Lazarus you? cried out Father Abraham, and that was his earthly name, was also his post-mortem name. Uh, he called Lazarus, Lazarus. Uh, they call Jesus, Jesus. So it seems to me that we do get a new name, but that new name is is private between us and, and God, specifically God the Father, that who gives us that new name. And so um, I don't know that because it's personal between us and God that we would be free to, you know, to call others by the same, or that we would even know what those names are. So, yeah. Okay, thanks. Uh-huh. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. I think we'll hold off on that for now. I'm going to, let's get our Philippian study done. And then as we have time remaining, um, we'll come back to the newsletter um, from Sunday morning. So let's uh, return to Philippians and, uh, and this. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, these are the joy and crown kindred that we've been studying now. My beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown kindred, in this way, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And so all of this tender language as, it, uh, as Paul communicates it, in fact, it's the most tender, it's the tenderest address that he gives to any local church. And he calls them beloved and longed for, which is agapetos and uh, epipathetos, 
beloved and longed for. And uh, the, the idea of longing is that idea of separation. Separation is a hurtful thing. Separation, death is a separation. And so a, a separation of fellowship is, uh, is a tough thing to deal with. And so uh, he calls them beloved and longed for in, uh, in this context. And then he calls them my joy and crown. Not only the crowns that he hopes to attain when he stands before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, that we, uh, we believe we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, we will receive crowns, we will receive uh, gold, silver, and precious stones as our positive work is evaluated and purified. But it's, it's, uh, the New Testament presents crowns not only as a future promise, but also a present reality. And we do have a present reality on these crowns. And uh, this is what we looked at in the uh, subpoints to point B then, the joy and crown kindred, and that's your Jack acronym. I hope, I don't know if Jack, uh, I meant to talk to Jack about this on Sunday, but joy and crown kindred, that's all of us. Because we should be joy and crown for every other one of us here in this local church. Joy and crown kindred. And, uh, and under this we had some subpoints, including let me bring these up here. The number four, crowns will be awarded in the future, but the joy of attaining such crowns happens right now. And really it's a thrill, it's a, it's a blessing, and it's a privilege when you know that you're serving your fellow believers, you're serving your brothers and your sisters, and in, it gives you a joy to bless them. It gives you a joy to, uh, to edify them in this way. And so you know even while it's happening, even while it's happening, you know that this is a joy and a crown in glory because it's such a joy and a crown right now. And so we can have a present realization of that future promised um, uh, crown that we will attain at the judgment seat of Christ. And so that's significant as well. And then we have a therefore. Uh, so in uh, Philippians 4.1 we have a therefore and we have an in this way. And those both get combined to describe the imperative stand firm. Stand firm is shaped by the expression therefore and the expression in this way. Right? In this way. It's not a corny uh, Mel Brooks joke about walk this way and then you copy, you copy uh, the guy as he's walking along. The, uh, but when he says in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved we recognize that there is a a method, there is a, a, a manner or a means by which it's going to happen. So we take the therefore and connect that with on the basis of rapture doctrine, everything that was given at the end of chapter 3, and then the in this way, eagerly waiting as joy and crown kindred, that those are the elements that feed the, uh, the stand firm imperative. Otherwise, the in this way has no context to, to define it. Uh, otherwise, and it's, and it's curious because there's, a, there's commentaries that actually go so far as to say uh, that the in this way is meaningless, that it has no referent, that it has no defined parameter, that it's uh, essentially it's just a throwaway phrase, which I, I find that ludicrous. I believe all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And that if you put the expression in there, it's in there for a reason. Like the expression, in the Lord. That's not throwaway language either. Some people will just gloss over that and blow off that just because they're, they're just going to drive onto the imperative that says stand firm. And so, you know, hey, that preaches, right? Stand firm, stand firm. But when you, when you overlook the in the Lord parameter, I mean, what are you doing? That makes all the difference in the world. 
in the Lord is a whole lot better than standing firm in yourself, in your own strength, in your own wisdom, or by your own ability. Yeah, good luck with that. Okay, so, you know, stand firm in your own strength? Are you kidding me? You know, how long can you tread water, right? Ha, 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 ha. No, don't stand firm in your own strength. Stand firm in the Lord. And, uh, and just, uh, man, don't, don't overlook these expressions. So, uh, therefore, in this way, on the basis of rapture doctrine, eagerly waiting as joy and crown kindred, stand firm. And so, really, this is why, I mean, I could teach the rapture, you know, a hundred times a year for the rest of my life and, and never get tired of it. Um, reflecting on rapture doctrine should create an attitudinal response. Uh, it's the blessed hope of imminent departure, and it goads us to stay rapture ready. It's that imminent response. You know, it's like you're sitting in the airline terminal and you're just waiting, and uh, you know that the plane started boarding, and you, you're looking at your ticket and you realize that you're, you know, um, low class. I mean, you're you're so far down the boarding list that you're you're waiting for all the priority groups and boarding group A, B, C, D, and you're waiting for your group. And uh, and but see, it's imminent. Because you don't know when they're going to call out, you know, boarding group J, come now and, and get on the plane. But, but you, and you don't want to fall asleep and you don't want to miss the announcement as it comes over the thing. Uh, because if you do, you miss it, right? You miss your flight. And who wants to do that? So the, the whole concept of rapture imminency is vital and it should create an attitudinal response. It should leave all of us on the edge of our seat and very diligent for, uh, for what we're doing here. It goads us to stay rapture ready. Other dispensations have had similar eschatological goads. I think God loves the idea of imminency, you know? For an eternal creature, I mean, he's not a creature, but the eternal I am of God, who is timeless, and it just, who, who himself is not subject to anything remotely approaching imminency. You know, what can surprise God? What can keep him on the edge of his seat? What, you know, what, what's keeping him up at night thinking, ooh, maybe it's tomorrow? Because he knows. He has the eternal plan. But then he's created billions of us, creatures, angels and humans, and, and, and here we are as time creatures. And that's got to be just the, from, I mean, from God's perspective, that's got to be just the cutest little thing. Look at all these time creatures. And they're living moment by moment, waiting for the rapture, waiting for the, the first advent of Jesus Christ, or waiting for the flood, or waiting for other, other venues. And he's had any number of these, of these things, the destruction of Jerusalem, other things, whereby humans have been kept in suspense. And he does that so frequently you know, even second heaven now, I come as a thief, I, behold, I come quickly. And, and, and all of these things, he, he, he puts imminency into so many facets of his plan in different venues and different ways. It's, uh, it's curious to me why he truly enjoys that and, and, and finds that as a, uh, uh, as a blessing to his creation. So other dispensations had similar uh, goads analogous to our rapture application. Stand firm. Stand firm. And we saw all of these. I think we saw, yeah, we saw all of these on Sunday. Stand firm. It is a present active imperative. The verb is stako, all right? There are other um, uh, terms for standing that are somewhat related, in fact, because you'll notice Ephesians 6 is not on this list because when you're putting on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm. It's a totally separate verb. And yet, you know, obviously there's a context that 
would, would make it similar to this imperative. Um, but the idea of a present uh, imperative means it's continuous action. We, we don't take a break, right? There's no day off from standing firm. We don't, we don't ask God for a time out. Can I stop standing firm today, Lord? I really I just, you know. No. It's a present active imperative. We are to stand firm all day, every day, and that's our joy in the church age. So uh, if you want to do more on this, I would encourage you. You'll find Stako, by the way, is linked. I mean, it is a part of the same verbal root with histemi, with a verb to stand. It, uh, it, it basically may have originally even just been a perfect tense of, of histemi that then kind of got promoted to its own vocabulary status, became a verb in its own right uh, be, uh, because of its usage in, in the things here. Anyway, stand firm. I love the, the, the term firm, how it speaks of the stability. It speaks of what we're studying in Hebrews right now, whereby we have an anchor, both sure and steadfast, one that enters within the veil. The fact as New Testament believers with a full canon of Scripture, we have no excuse. I mean, really. What do we have to, to just fly off the rails and lose it and not stand firm? Because we, we got the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the uh, Christ living in you, the hope of glory. We have a complete canon of Scripture. I mean, what, what has not been given us to not stand firm? Say, we've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so now the final detail on this is this expression, in the Lord. I want to take time to, to detail this. The expression, in the Lord. And we have this repeatedly. And it shows up with a lot of other different activities. And and recently, of course, we had it in Philippians because we're told, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. And so what does it mean if you're going to do something in the Lord, right? That's not just a throwaway expression. It has significant uh, impact. The fact is, is that many things we can't rejoice in in themselves because they don't contain anything joyful. You know, you get a cancer diagnosis. Why would I rejoice in that? See, well, you're not told to rejoice in that. You're told to rejoice in the Lord, okay? And so don't rejoice in the cancer, rejoice in the Lord. And, uh, and so it sets the parameter whereby if I'm occupied with Christ, if my eyes are fixed on Him, then I can rejoice, no matter what the other circumstances might be. Because, yeah, here comes this diagnosis, here comes that uh, conflict, see, and it just seems that this testing piles up. I got health tests, I got a financial test, I got a marriage test, I got an employment test, I got, uh, you know, and all these things are all stacking up. And you start to wonder, well, isn't this enough? How much more can there be? Well, enough to uh, cause us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we don't take our eyes off Him, so that we keep on rejoicing in the Lord, not in our testing. So in the Lord speaks to our occupation with Christ and our personal submission to His will for everything that we do. Everything we experience, everything we go through, everything that we do, we are submitting to His will. We're saying, not my will, but thine be done. All right? And so here comes, uh, here comes the next test and whatever it is. Uh, you know, uh, somebody got offended, somebody's suing you or whatever else is happening. And so you say, okay, Lord, and so rather than grumble, rather than murmur and complain or, or disagree with God to say, far be it from me, this should never happen to me. Instead, we say, thank you, Lord, because this has been assigned and this is where you're having me walk and I'm walking with you. And even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death, oh, well, I'm walking with the Lord. I'm not going to 
try to bail and, and chart my own path somewhere. Personal submission to His will for everything that we do. We had this term in Philippians 1.14 when he said, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Trusting in the Lord. And we can trust in the Lord, we can rejoice in the Lord, we can stand firm in the Lord, we can, there's a long list of things we can do in the Lord. And you might remember we did that study of things you can do in the Lord and things you should do in the Lord. You can even die in the Lord. How fun was that? Okay? And uh, other things we can do in the Lord. Philippians 2, 19 and 24 and 29. I hope in the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. So, I mean, it makes all the difference in the world. Besides just saying, I hope to send Timothy to you. No, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you. Which means that I'm occupied with Christ, I'm keeping my eyes fixed on Him, I'm leaving my uh, travel arrangements in His hands. If he, uh, if he opens the door, then great, we'll go through it. If He closes the door, great, we won't go through it. Because we can't open a door that, that Jesus shuts. No man can open the doors that He shuts. And this is, uh, this is key. I mean, this for Lewis, for anyone, if you're, if you're looking for ministry and you're wondering when is, uh, you know, when is a pulpit going to come open? When can I go candidate somewhere? Or these other things. Well, in the Lord. In the Lord. Okay? And so you can hope, you can trust, you can wait, you can rejoice, you can stand firm. All these things have to be done in the Lord. So he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. And you know what that means? If the Lord says no and doesn't send Timothy, well then Paul doesn't get the encouragement. Paul, uh, he'll have to do without the encouragement, but he hopes in the Lord that if he can send Timothy, then he will receive that encouragement. Then in verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming to you shortly. And so you've got the alpizo of hope and you've got the pastuo of trust and you've got uh, these different verbs, but they're both done in the Lord. All of these expressions are done in the Lord. Verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard. This is now talking about Epaphroditus and the messenger that Paul sent with the, uh, the scroll that today we call the book of Philippians. But to receive somebody in the Lord, that makes a big difference. Because if you don't receive them in the Lord, how do you receive them? You receive them what? In a spirit of what? Kindness and a spirit of generosity. In a, you receive them what? In, in a, on a worldly basis? According to the wisdom of this cosmos? Good luck with that. There's, uh, you know, as far as this world operates, uh, nothing's for free. You know, what am I getting out of this? I'm going to receive him. Well, what do I get out of this? Why should I receive him? What, what, what has he done for me lately? Okay, but receiving in the Lord takes all that human stuff and just gets rid of it. There's no, there's no place for any of that. You receive him in the Lord and go, hey. And, and then you treat this, this traveler, this person, that your, your hospitality is as such as if that's Jesus himself that just came under your roof. How gracious would you be if it was Jesus? You know? Would you, would you grumble if, if uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, just think about it. 
you know, you got somebody that you have to host for whatever length of time and, and you, you resent the fact that you have to do this. Well, really? What if it was Jesus? Would you put up with it then? You know? You okay then? You know, what if he raided your refrigerator last night and, and you know, what, what do you do? You know, do you hide the good stuff and bring out the cheap stuff? Because, you know, <laughs> this is the Lord we're talking about. Don't you want to just give him your best and, and serve him in every way imaginable? Of course. So receive him in the Lord. Uh, chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Not rejoicing in your problems, not rejoicing in the circumstances, not rejoicing in your, in your humanity or in your flesh, but rejoicing in the Lord. It gets repeated again and again and again. Chapter 4 and verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 2, live in harmony in the Lord. Live in harmony in the Lord. So you're going to tell two people to get along and they just can't get along. Do you know how long they've been at it? You know how long they've been, they've been hating each other? This Yodia and Syneke thing? Alright, well, it hasn't been forever because they used to be in ministry together. They used to be fellow partners with Paul back in the day. That's what makes it more hurtful now. I mean, when you, when you talk about, um, in verse 3 he says, I, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Oh, back in the day they really did. They, they supported Paul. They were fellow strugglers together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So yeah, they've, they've laid up treasure in heaven. They've, they've served. But now they're on the verge of throwing that all away. Because presently they can't get along. There's no harmony. And there should be. And if you say there can't, I would encourage you to rethink the idea of in the Lord. Because, let's be honest, there's personalities that will clash. And there's going to be personalities that will never really mesh with other personalities in human terms. But in the Lord, it, it all can happen, right? If, if you love Jesus and they love Jesus, let's, let's do this. Live in harmony in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have uh, revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And so I take this phrase, in the Lord, and I, I, I use it rather analogously to uh, in the Spirit, for example, where maybe, okay, so if we use the Spirit, then we're talking about being in fellowship. We're talking about not being carnal, that we've confessed our sins, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit again, so now we're in the Spirit, right? Well, in the Lord is the same way, only more so. Because in the Lord, of course, you have to be in, in the Spirit. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You have to have no one confess sin. You can't, can't be out of fellowship. But it's, got, it's more than just being in fellowship. It's an additional step beyond being in fellowship. It means fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That means you're fully occupied with Christ, in fellowship and occupied with Christ. Then in the Lord, what can you not do? Okay? Anything. I mean, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, it's, it's, if I'm filled with the Spirit and occupied with Christ, wow, anything goes at that point. So whatever the Lord wants me to do, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a treasure just to walk with Him. Okay, so that's what we didn't have time to get to on Sunday morning, those in the Lord expressions. If you want more on that, like I say, we had done this uh, before. 
uh, and we have a whole study on this and even made handouts if you want one you know let me know I can email it to you uh, because there's things that we possess in the Lord and there's things we can do in the Lord and uh, you might remember these the things we possess in the Lord include our life in Christ our love in Christ grace liberty blessing unity they're all in the Lord unity in the Lord blessing in the Lord. Remember Ephesians 1.3? We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ. Alright? That's our, that's our heritage as church age believer priests. And then things we can do in the Lord. Knowing and being convinced. Receiving a saint. We saw that tonight. Working hard. Yeah, much better to work hard in the Lord instead of working hard in your own might or your own strength. Uh, greeting others in the Lord, boasting in the Lord, the birth of a child. Have you fathered a child in the Lord? Okay. You know, I mean, I've never birthed a child, biologically speaking. That's kind of, Sharon did all that. But um, actually (laughs) birthing a child in the spiritual application and in the sense of leading them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and, and birthing them into eternity, how powerful is that? And we get to do that in the Lord marrying in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7.39. Entering a door of ministry in the Lord. Having confidence in somebody else, having confidence in yourself. Both of those can be done in the Lord. Obeying your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. See, that's not a throwaway expression. If you're out of fellowship and not occupied with Jesus Christ, then obeying your parents might be difficult. All right, but in the Lord, what can you not do in the Lord? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. Trust in the Lord, hope in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, stand firm in the Lord, live in harmony in the Lord. All that's out of the book of Philippians. Request and exhort in the Lord, command and exhort in the Lord. Have charge over a flock in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Yeah, try to shepherd with, with your own human ability. That'll, that'll take you nowhere. Benefit from another in the Lord. Benefit from one another in the Lord. Philemon in verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Yes, my brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Isn't that glorious? That is sanctified, uh, I don't know what you want to call that, sanctified, you know, I mean, if you put that in human terms, it sounds manipulative. It sounds like, uh, I don't know, you're a user or something. You just, you know, let me benefit from you. Well, okay, (laughs) what do you mean by that? But in the Lord, oh yeah, benefit in the Lord, of course. You've got a gift, you've got a ministry pursuit, you've got an effect, I'm going to benefit from that. All day, every day. And then you're going to benefit from me. And it's going to be mutual, reciprocal. It's going to go both directions. We're going to benefit from one another in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So that's a neat expression. What else do we have? Die. <laughs> die in the Lord. You know, I mean, how hard is it to die? Everybody dies. But wait a minute. How about dying in victory? Dying in faith? Dying filled with the Holy Spirit, occupied with Jesus Christ, dying in the Lord. What a joy. And it's, I mean, there's a power in that. So uh, 
Revelation 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. The dead in Christ that rise first. Alright, so there's the study there. In the Lord speaks to our occupation with Christ and personal submission to His will for everything that we do. And it'll come back again because not only is the in the Lord phrase in verse 1, the in the Lord phrase is also in verse 2. So uh, a week from tonight when we address Iodia and Syneche, uh, we're going to urge them to live in harmony, whatever that is, but to do that in the Lord. All right? They're going to live together in the Lord. And uh, that's going to resolve whatever the temporal life thing is. You know, do you ever look back at things in the past and think, that was sure stupid. Why was I all worked up over that? Okay? And, and, and for us, we're just talking about, you know, years ago or months ago or whatever, back in the day or whatever, back in college. I mean, they were just something that back then we thought was everything. And now we look at it and think, eh, that was kind of dumb. It wasn't really worth losing a friend over. It wasn't really worth fighting over. It wasn't really worth whatever happened. Well, now take that that analogy that we experience in human terms, and multiply it times of infinity, because when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, <laughs> we'll look back to the, the time we spent on this planet and this life and think, why was I so worked up over this dumb thing? You know, the eternal perspective really fixes a lot of issues, and, and uh, we should start thinking that way now because that's the life we have now. All right, so we have that. Uh, let's take our final minutes then, shifting gears, and let's turn over to Ephesians, Ephesians 5, because uh, if you read the newsletter, and uh, it is kind of cool. We get uh, little reports. There are analytics available through MailChimp and so forth for how many people have received the email, how many people have opened the email, how many people have clicked the link, how many people have downloaded the PDF, and uh, you get kind of a summary report based on that. So it's actually more accurate than just the pastor who assumes you didn't do your Bible reading last week when he wanted you to read uh, a chapter from from 1 Peter. We actually have analytics that, that show uh, that the thing has been downloaded. And whether you read it or not, I can't prove, but at least you downloaded the, the PDF. And so let's look at it. Uh, close that, close that. Let's go to uh, Ephesians 5.22 where it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And really, tonight is going to be a nice um, hermeneutical exercise and it'll be a refresher course if some of you have had hermeneutics classes before, but context determines everything, and uh, all too often uh, I think some people confuse exegesis with hermeneutics, and they think that if they just translate it better that they'll understand it, when in reality it doesn't matter what language it's in, if you're going to twist the context the way you're twisting it, you're you're damaging the text, and that's we're not allowed to do that. So um, when we're looking at, at Ephesians chapter 5, we have relationships. And we have a paragraph that precedes this, and then we have this paragraph. And the same thing that happens here in Ephesians 5 is the same thing that happens in Colossians. And so we can have, we can see those passages side by side, and I'll show you what I'm talking about here. But this has become an issue. And the reason why I wanted to write about it in the newsletter is because I'm seeing it, it's happening in evangelical churches nationwide. And 
even in our kind of churches, it's, it's, having, uh, it's doing damage. And it's doing damage among believers who should know better. And so I want to see if we can keep it from happening here, certainly. All right. So uh, relationships. And you end up with three pairings. You have wives and husbands. That's a pairing. You have children and parents. That's a pairing. And you have slaves and masters. That's a pairing. All right. So there's three pairings. And in all three of these pairings, the, uh, the aspects are repeated. They're repeated all three times. And so the point is made over and over and over again as it, uh, as it comes to this. And so there's wives and husbands. You get down to children and parents. And it's always that order too. The wife who's subject to the husband. The wife is addressed first and then the husband. See? And then uh, the children are addressed. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then the parents are addressed in verse 4. Fathers or parents do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so in all three of these pairings and then slaves be obedient to those who are your masters and then masters. Verse 9, do the same thing to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. So we have a paragraph here that centers on human relationships. And in those human relationships we have authority. We have uh, order. We have precedent. That we have, uh, I'm not going to use the word unequal, but we have different positions as they relate. And the, the orientation of the master to the slave, you want, I might even say over, the master over the slave or the slave under the master, it is in an over-under dichotomy. And it is, it is in that order. That's not accidental. Parents and children are in an over-under dichotomy. And if there's any confusion on that, the parents are over the children. Okay? Sadly, that gets flipped upside down again and again and again. And believers are making their church choices based upon what the kids want. And, uh, and everything is all about, well, the kids need this, the kids need this, and youth group, and this and this. And, and meanwhile, the parents have abdicated their headship in the, in the family. And it'd be like a slave, uh, you know, bossing the master around and the master being subject to the slave. That's, that's insane. That's not how it works. And then with husbands and wives. And so when you get back to the husbands and wives again, it is um, in an order above and below, over, under, authority and submission. And that's the, the description there. But that's what gets rebelled against. That's what is disliked among feminist theology and it's creeping into evangelical uh, circles at this point. And so here's how they do it. They actually back up a verse to verse 21 because there they've got an expression they think is their way of escape. <laughs> they think it's their fine print. This is their shining Pharisee moment where they ask, well, who's my neighbor? Right? And so they think they can be all clever about getting away from the love your neighbor command. Okay? The whole question about who's my neighbor is just pride that says, I don't want to love my neighbor. So uh, tell me the bare minimum here and who can I get away with not loving? Right? That's the whole point. And the exercise happens here when you have wives that don't want to submit to their husbands. And so then they ask the question, well, is that really what it says? And all they're doing is they're, they're echoing Satan's lie when Satan said, did God really say? 
you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? That's ludicrous. God didn't say anything like that. But Satan will ask that question. Did God really say? And we have women today in 21st century American churches, did God really say, wives be subject to your husbands? Okay? As to the Lord. Yes. He said that. In fact, he said it several times. He said it in Ephesians, he said it in Colossians, he said it in these parallel passages. So it says, if I let me recognize this. And if you want to back up, if you think you've got a parachute or you've got some kind of a fine print in the verse ahead of verse 22, you don't. Okay? I'm going to demonstrate that. So, in the paragraph prior to the human relationships is the paragraph that relates to our Christian walk. And so, uh, as a congregation, as an assembly, uh, it says in verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And we have parameters here that are describing for Christians, for the body of Christ, as we serve together and love together and work together, for how do we operate in our mutual reciprocal way. And so it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then, really, these verses, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, I think it's self-evident. If anyone wants to, to dispute this, let me know. I mean, raise your hand or ask me or say something. But there's no question that in verse 19 here we have a corporate context for the corporate body of Christ, for the local church, how we operate together. That's how why we have the one another imperatives here. One another means there's a crowd of us, okay? It's not Joe Hermit Christian living in a cave. This is the body of Christ and we're singing together, we're worshiping together, making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And so we share our thanksgivings. And my thanksgivings become your thanksgivings. And my struggles become your struggles. And all these things we have in common. Which is why it then says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. To be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now that's a beautiful verse. I love that verse. In the context where it belongs. With a body of believers where we are neither male nor female, bond nor free, where uh, all those differences are set aside, where we are one body in Christ, members one of another. And so because we're members of the body of Christ, I'm subject to you, you're subject to me, we're all subject to each other in our edification of one another, our service to one another, our responsibilities to love and care for one another. The body of Christ is a corporate unity that has mutually uh, mutual reciprocal relationships, right? These one another imperatives. That's marvelous for the body of Christ because we're a heavenly citizenship, we're a spiritual body, we're, a, we're a, the, the mystical body of Christ in union with Christ. Perfect setting for be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, to then take that and put it into a human relationship like marriage or parenting or labor relations in the workforce, Okay, We're not slaves anymore, but we still are employees with bosses that seem like slave masters sometimes. Um, we have a, there's, there's authority in the workplace. 
There's authority in the family. There's authority in the marriage. There is, there is by design the functionality of this and it is not mutually reciprocal. It is not mutually reciprocal. If you obey your children in a mutually reciprocal, reciprocal way to how you expect them to obey you, it is just insanity. It's just not going to happen. And if the, if the employees expect the bosses to obey them in a mutually reciprocal way with the way that, that they obey the boss, what is that? That means you don't have a boss. And it's, um, it's just it's chaos. Same thing with wives. Same thing in marriage. If, uh, <clears throat> if the wife and the husband, if, if they're treated like interchangeable parts, like there's no difference, like they both submit to the other, you realize what a dangerous slippery slope that is? Because then, then there's a license to not submit at all. Because, well, he's not submitting to me. And he's not loving me like Christ loved the church, so I don't have to submit to him. And so this, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a rewrite of these verses is what's happening. And they're putting their own expectations into these verses. Taking that verse out of the previous context in verse 21 and forcing it to control verse 22 and everything that follows. Now the reason why this uh, is, is not valid at all is because we go over here to Colossians. And in Colossians 3.18 it's the same imperative, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's the same order, wives first, husbands second, children third, parents fourth, slaves fifth, masters sixth. It's the same six people groups in, in three pairings. And the paragraph before is centered on the body of Christ. <clears throat> so again you'll see this. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's a local church application. That's a body of believers in a flock. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." the body of believers in the local church. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is corporate. This is a body of believers. And it can be, it can be within a family if you, have, you know, if you and your wife are in the same church and your kids are in the same church. While we are assembled and we're worshiping, it's, it's, it's mutual, it's reciprocal. And, and I'm subject to you and you're subject to me and you're teaching me and I'm teaching you. We've had some time, to, Christopher's blessed me several times in the last couple months with some fascinating insights from the, from the Scriptures. See, But that's in a church context that's not in the parent-child relationship in the home. And so whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And then we go from the local church to family. And interestingly enough, unlike the Ephesians parallel in Colossians, it doesn't have the statement about be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Colossians just transitions from the local church application, goes right to the wives and says, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And so if you're going to be you know, if you're going to be destructively hermeneutical, 
If you're going to be hermeneutically destructive, yeah. If you're going to be, if you're going to, if you're going to abuse Ephesians five twenty one and think that that somehow saves you, or keeps you from pretend, or allows you to pretend that Ephesians five twenty two doesn't say what it says, well, you can't even do that here. There's no option to do that here, and it wasn't even right there either. But here it is. All right. And husbands love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. And then in there, does it say you know? Does it say love your wives as long as they're in subjection like they're supposed to be in verse 18? Does it say that? No, it's unconditional. Whether they're in subjection or not, you, you still love them. And wives, be subject to your husbands, whether they're loving you as Christ loved the church or not. It is completely irrelevant what the other person's doing. You still have your imperative as unto the Lord. In fact, your reward is greater when uh, it's uh, undeserved suffering you're enduring to to obey the Lord. All right. So that's the order on it there. And this is, by the way, this is um, common. The literature that's out now from the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood is just scary. Especially since in the early 90s, I think when they were founded, they were founded with the right uh, ideas, with the right intentions, with the right... But it's been, since the early 90s now, it's been 28 years. And, uh, and it's not good. All right, it is now so satanic to this point that if um, that the wife uh, doesn't have to submit, if she she submits, if he is leading her properly, then she will want to submit. She will joyously submit, and everything will be great. But it's all on him. And then if she doesn't, well, that's on him too, because that's just an indicator that he needs to get right, and and actually she can be the wake up call for him. She can, uh, you know, threaten to blow up the marriage or threaten to blow up the family or threaten to do this and that. And it becomes a movie plot in some of these uh, Christian movies that the, uh, the threat of divorce wakes him up and he decides, oh, wow, you're right. Thank you, love. I've not been the husband I'm supposed to be. And, and here we go. And it becomes a sanctified uh, marital terrorism in, uh, in some respects on that. So understand, again, the text comes from Ephesians 5 the imperative for the wives to be subject to their husbands is not in any way connected to the Christian mutual subjection that we have in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? All right. And that's what the newsletter was about, and that's what that article was written about. And, uh, and if you need more, um, there's, um, there are resources now. There's starting to become, some pastors are starting to write on this. And you, you might not be shocked by this, but when they publish their critiques, they're destroyed. They are av- by fellow Christians, by fellow pastors, fellow evangelicals. You're a woman hater. You're doing this. You're doing that, and it's it's brutal. And the Southern Baptist Church just lost a seminary president because of this, uh, just last uh, over the summer this year, and it's uh, it's it's starting to spread. So, anyway, I wanted to address that tonight. Let's close in prayer and then uh, just thank the Lord for His faithfulness. Father, I thank You for tonight. I thank You for Your truth. I thank You for um, the book of Philippians whereby we have the attitude that was in Christ Jesus, whereby we have, if we have a different attitude, You will also show that to us. And Father, this is, uh, this is what we want to apply. We want to be rapture ready. We want to uh, consider one another as joy and crown. We want to uh, be anxious for nothing. And all of this is possible, Father, if we, if we humble ourselves before what Your Word reveals. 
So thank you for your faithfulness, Father. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.